Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with you guys this morning. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in again. Uh, If you have been following us virtually for the last couple of weeks, then you know that for several weeks now, as Matt just said, we've been talking about prayer. So the name of the study is When God Prays. And really what we've been doing is looking into the prayer life of Jesus and looking into some of the prayer teachings of Jesus. And what we're going to do today is we're going to bring it to an end by looking at a statement that Jesus makes about prayer in Luke chapter 9, which if you're not familiar with Luke's account of the life of Jesus, that is the book of Luke, is a really pivotal chapter in the book. And I say that because in the first eight and a half or so chapters, what Luke is doing is he talks about the birth of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus and the calling of the disciples of Jesus. He talks about some of the teachings of Jesus, some of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, if you look at it chronologically in terms of the whole of Jesus' three-year ministry, 98% of it is right there. And what happens is you get to chapter 9, and it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means he's going to the cross. Like, he's going to Jerusalem, and he's not going to go back again. Like, this is it. He's going, and he is going to be crucified. And he begins that journey together with his disciples toward that moment. And in the pivotal chapter, you have some really pivotal moments. You have, as Matt talked about, Jesus kind of sitting down with his guys, and these are the guys that he's going to leave the whole mission to. And he says to these guys, hey, listen, you know, guys, I mean, you guys are the ones who are dealing with the crowds, like you're my crowd managers, you're the guys that I send into town to get the food, like you're the one that all the crowds come to and they ask you questions about me and they ask you to ask me questions for them, like you deal with the people more actively and directly than I do. So what are they saying? Like, who are those people out there who are not part of the center core saying that I am? And so they start answering the question. They're like, well, you know, some people think you're this, and some people think you're that, and then this other group of people, well, they think this, and these guys think that, and Jesus says, all right, so here's the thing. Now that you've told me what they think, the real reason I asked that question is to set up this question. Who do you guys think that I am? Because I've been pouring into you. I've been doing life with you. I've been living publicly and privately with you. Everything that I have done, I've done together with you. Again, I'm leaving the whole mission, everything to you. So it's an intense moment. And I, you know, I don't have this on tape or anything, but I mean, I kind of, in my mind, I see Peter sort of raise his hand and say, hey guys, you know, I, I got this one. Like, you know, Jesus, we've been talking about it. We've been thinking about it. Obviously, we've given up everything the last three years to be with you and to follow you. And we've watched you in public and we've watched you in private. And we've seen all this stuff and we've heard all the teachings and we have been talking about it together. And we have concluded that you, Jesus, are the Christ. You are, you're the son of God. You are God made man. You're the deliverer. You're the one that all of the scriptures were telling us all of these thousands of years were, was going to come. It's you. And he said, that is exactly right. I am the Christ of God. And then immediately he says, now let me tell you what that means for me, Jesus. I've set my face to go to Jerusalem. And and here's the thing, when we get there, (laughs) I'm going to tell you in advance what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be falsely charged and tried and convicted of a crime that I'm completely innocent of. It's going to be a total sham. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be scandalized. I'm going to be all kinds, slandered. All kinds of negative, awful, horrific things are going to happen to me. And then if that's not enough, they're going to strip me naked and they're going to nail me to a tree where I, as the Christ, declared by John the Baptist, guys... You were there. 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I will lay down my perfectly innocent life in the place of any guilty person anywhere, any era, any race, language, nation, tribe, tongue, who will claim the payment of my life as the debt, as payment of the debt that they owe to God for the way that they've lived, the innocent for the guilty. But don't despair, because here's the deal. Like, after that, I'm going to be buried. It's what you do with dead people. And then, this is the stranger part, on the morning of the third day, because I am who you guys have figured out that I am, I'm going to come forth from the grave alive. So that's what being the Christ means for me. And then immediately after that, he says, now here's what following the Christ means for you. And not just you 12, but anyone, anywhere, any era, any nation, any language, any tribe, any tongue who claims me, not just as Savior, but as Lord. And that is the way that it works, incidentally. It's not like you get Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. It's like, you know, I'm Tom Hendricks. If you invite me over for dinner, you can't just invite Tom over, you know. Leave the Hendricks at home. It's no, 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 no. As we sang, he is our king. Okay. Well, here's what it means to follow me. Here's what it means to be one of my disciples, one of my people. He says this in Luke 9, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus said to all, not just to them, but to everybody. He says, if anyone would come after me, meaning if anybody would follow me, be my disciple, be one of my people. All right, well, let him do what? Let him deny himself, which in the Greek language that underlies this English translation makes clear is a one-time decision. Like it's a moment in time where you go, okay, um, I'm going to stop just playing around with Jesus. I'm going to stop trying to get him to follow me and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to stop trying to be God and let him be God because that's who he is. I'm going to quit with the one foot in and one foot out stuff and I'm just going to, by the power of the Spirit, move both feet in, and I'm finally, fully, wholeheartedly going to go all in on Jesus, as nervous as that may make me. Jesus says, good. All right. If anyone would follow me, it starts with that. But then he continues. He says, let him deny himself and then take up his cross. It's the language of crucifixion and death. He's going, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified for you. And I just need you to know that following me is going to involve crucifixion for some of you too. Now, some of them, literally, but really what he's referring to is crucifixion of things, crucifixion of passions, crucifixion of plans, crucifixions of what we would have done with our lives had we not decided to follow Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and then take up his cross every day, daily, and follow me. And then he says this, and it's so brilliant. He says, for whoever would save his life, which doesn't mean your physical life. Now, it may involve your physical life. It has for many. But really what it means is, is the life that you would have lived if there was no Jesus, it's, it's, it's your plans, it's your purposes, it's your agendas, it's life as you would define it, define it and construct it and then live it if left to yourself. He's like, if you're all about protecting what you've got, protecting your plans and purposes, if you want to save that, for whoever would save his life in that sense will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... In other words, whoever makes the call, whoever says, all right, that's it, I'm going in, and then gets up every day and reaffirms it by dying to whatever needs to be killed 
so that you can follow Jesus in that day. Whoever does that, he says, will save it. So what is Jesus doing with that statement? Well, really, I mean, if you think about it, he's dividing all of humanity into two camps. So there's the camp that lives for themselves, and then there's the camp that lives for Jesus. And he's telling everybody in advance exactly how life is going to end for them. He's saying, okay, so like if you live for yourself, if you, from the things of this world, which is all you have, if there's no God, if there's no Jesus, create an identity for yourself through achievement, through stuff, through things, through the opinions of other people, like if that's what your life is all about, all right, well, then when you die, what will you lose? I mean, it's self-evident, isn't it? You'll lose everything you lived for. You'll leave it all behind. It's all over. But Jesus says, look, if, if you live for me, if it's, if it's all about me, if you deny yourself, if you get up, if you die to this and you die to that, because that's what it takes to follow me, and you, in fact, follow me, then when you die, what do you lose? You lose nothing. But what do you gain? And if you think about it, you gain everything that you've lived for. So the logic is compelling. But here's the deal. It doesn't sound exciting. I mean, I think if we're just honest, it's not like super motivating. Like we don't look at it and go, wow, where can I sign up for that? You know, it's like, hey, Tom, is there like a form online now that I can do that? Is it on the app? Can I like a little tile, deny yourself, die to stuff today? Like nobody is interested in that if we're honest and we're not interested in it because we're self-motivated and all we're focused on is what we lose. You know what the motive is for denying yourself, for like going all in, for saying, okay, finally, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to take the step. I'm going to quit with the two feet. I'm going to go with the both feet in now, like no more one foot out, one foot in. Like, do you know what the motive is for that? Do you know what the motive is for getting up and dying to this and dying to that and being uncomfortable and doing this and giving away this and not having enough of this because you gave it over here and all that? The motive, guys, is not duty. It's not obligation. It's not guilt. It's not ought to. It's not... That's what responsible good Christians do. That's not the motive. The motive is overwhelming joy. The motive is joy. It's a good motive. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 44. One verse, he just nails it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found in the field. He's working in the field, he finds the treasure, and then he covers it up before anybody else notices. But he's seen it, and it's amazing. It's glorious. It's like, wow. And then in his duty, in his obligation, out of guilt, out of... No, come on. In his joy, what does he do? He denies himself and dies to literally everything that he has until that moment lived for. It says in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field so that with clear title, he can gain the treasure. And he's not bemoaning the loss. He's not going, oh, I can't believe i got to die to myself, and and i got to deny this, and i got to get rid of that, and i got to dispossess and dispossess. He's saying, are you kidding me? I get this? This is amazing. I get to do this with joy. So what is Jesus saying? Okay, so I think what Jesus is saying is that your heart and my heart is kind of like this glass beaker which looks like it's empty, right? Like, I mean, nothing comes out. It put my hand in there, nothing. But it's actually 100% full of air. 
So here's the deal. If I want to get the air out of this, I mean, you know, like, like, what are my options? All right. I mean, I think I have two. I mean, if you're a science major, maybe you've got four, but I have two. So option number one, I seal off the top and I, ha- I create some kind of a pump on the top of this thing. And then I suck with all kinds of pressure, all of the air out of the beaker. And then I continue to maintain that pressure to keep the air out of the beaker. And all the while the beaker is resisting, the beaker does not want to be empty. Can we agree on that? So that's one way. The other way is I just fill it with something else. No more air. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, Guys, your heart is kind of like this beaker. And you have a problem denying yourself and dying to things and all of that stuff because, I mean, let's just be honest, it doesn't like to be empty. It doesn't. It resists empty. It fears empty. It resents empty. It works as hard as it possibly can against empty. It will fill itself with all kinds of unhealthy things before it will endure the agony of empty. But you have no problem at all divesting yourself of what's in it when something more beautiful comes along, when something more glorious is presented, when something more satisfying and pleasurable all of a sudden comes along and you're like, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It's kind of like the dude with the treasure in the field. It's like I've been working all my life to gain all this stuff and I am full of all of this stuff and this is everything I've lived for. And then I find the treasure and I'm like, so I got to get rid of this to gain this? Done. Where do I sign the deal? Where's the form online? Is there a tile on the app? Because I want to sign up for deny myself and die to things. Jesus is not coming to us and saying, I want you to be empty. Merry Christmas. He's coming to us and saying, listen, the beaker of your heart is full of things of infinitely lesser value than me. And here's what I'm offering. I'm offering me. I want you to be full, but but I want you to be full of me, which if you think about it, means that if you're unwilling to deny yourself and to die to yourself, then you have not yet found the treasure. Or if you found the treasure, you haven't unearthed it, like you haven't looked at it, you haven't recognized its value. You have failed somehow, some way to really appreciate the exceedingly great infinitely great value of Jesus, the incomparably great value of Jesus in comparison to whatever it is that's presently inside of the beaker of your heart. And we saw examples of that this week in our personal worship in this same chapter of Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. Luke tells us that as they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, were going along the road, they're on their way to Jerusalem, but they're going to stop along the way in a lot of places... It says that someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, who unlike me, can see into the beaker of this man's heart, looks into the beaker of this man's heart and he sees, no, actually, you won't. And here's the reason, because in your heart, okay, you're full of your home and you're full of your possessions and you're full of the comfort and you're full of the status and all of the stuff that all of that provides for you and you value that more than me and I'm going to prove it by testing you. And so he says to this man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. In other words, like you, they have comfortable places to live, but I don't know, you may have noticed, but me and the guys here are campers. 
And that's what it means to follow me. Incidentally, it means camping. The Son of Man, he says, has nowhere to lay his head. So listen, man, I'm not going to leave you empty. I'm going to fill you with me. Do you value me more than this? To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first, don't miss that, go and bury my father, which seems like a very reasonable request. I mean, this guy's father has died, and he's not even buried yet. But Jesus looks into the beaker of this man's heart too. And he perceives that this man's heart is filled with the duty of family. Family can be an idol too. It's a good thing, obviously. But it's not a good thing if it's our God. So he looks into the beaker of this man's heart and he thinks, eh, I don't think you will. So he tests him. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, which of necessity means leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God because that's what first is when you're following me. Yet another says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first... Say farewell to those at my home, which again is a reasonable request. I mean, you know, it's not like they had cell phones. You know, it's not like this guy could call his mom and go, hey, I'm going to not be home for dinner. In fact, I'm not coming home. I'm following Jesus and, you know, I'm going to share my location with you and you can follow me around and we'll talk and I'll send you videos and it's going to be amazing and I can't wait to get to Jerusalem because that sounds like it's going to be fun. And it's like, no, they're just going, where did he go? Where, Where is he? Like, what happened? He says, Lord, let me do this first. And Jesus says, the fact that you want to do this first tells me that your heart is full of a different mission that you value more than mine. And so he says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. And those guys all understood farming, you know. And all their fields there are full of stones. So here's the deal. If you're plowing a field, you cannot look back. You have to be constantly concentrating on what you're doing. And the reason for that is, A, you want to cut straight furrows. But more than that, because of the stones, you don't want to hit one and break your plow. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Look, if you're unwilling to deny yourself and to die to yourself in favor of Jesus, it's because you haven't properly estimated and appraised the value of Jesus relative to whatever else it is that's in the beaker of your heart. It's that simple because when you do, man, like with joy, you do whatever it takes to gain the treasure in the field. And I think we see this with material things all the time. I think one of the best examples of this is seen if you go to Haiti. You know, over the last, I don't know, eight, ten years now, we've probably sent over 400 people to Haiti at this point. And here is the universal experience of everybody who goes, and I've been several times. So here, here's what happens. You go, and then you meet these Christian people, and you go and you tour these villages on the first day typically, and you all of a sudden are assaulted by the impoverishment of these people, by the frank squalor in which they live. Like you have no category by which to understand the depth of their poverty, and it is unsettling. Like it drains you physically. It absolutely wipes you out emotionally. It challenges you spiritually, like death is around every corner for these people. It's devastating in a lot of ways. By the time you leave, you're envious of these people. Now, you're not envious of their poverty. You're envious of their joy. 
You know, my experience with those people have convinced me that I think the most joyous people in the whole of the world, guys, are the people in this world who literally have nothing but Jesus because there's nothing else in the beaker but him. And what's better? Charles Spurgeon said that in the absence of other goods, the good God is better seen. And when you see him, you live differently, and that means he comes first. But beyond that, when you see him, you pray differently, and that's what we're talking about. Luke continues in chapter 10, which is really just the next verse. And he says that after this, after these encounters with these three different people, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to stop in all these places along the way. He's like, you guys, go do some work before I get there. Till the soil. But notice what he said to them. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, do what? Pray, okay. All right, but how? Earnestly, passionately, with a fervor. To whom? Because I love the way the Lord is described. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord who wants to gather you in, who wants to take you in, who wants you to find shelter under the blood of Jesus, who wants you to be filled with his joy. But what's the prayer? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is to say, into this world full of people whose whose hearts are full of the things of this world that they'll all give away at the end. That by design do not satisfy or make full. You just, you can't get enough. You just, you can't get enough. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fill. It doesn't stay. He's saying, listen, Be filled with me. Come and fill yourself with me. So I want to ask you this, first of all. Who or what are you filled with right now? Because again, Jesus isn't calling you to be empty. Your heart resists empty. Your heart doesn't do empty. He's like, I'm not asking for empty. I'm asking for full. I just want you to be full of me. And when your life ends, you gain everything you've lived for. And you give everything away in between then and now enjoy. Secondly, who or what do you, do you need to die to right now? I tend to find that people know the answer to that question. You know, like there's something in the beaker of your heart that isn't Jesus. Like he's in there to about here, and then there's this little protected zone that's super unhealthy. It's not good for you. It's not creating freedom. It's not creating joy. It's creating slavery and oppression and all kinds of other things. What do you need to die to right now? What's the step you need to take toward the death of that thing that Christ might be all in all for you? And then finally, who or what are you praying for right now? Because here's what Jesus doesn't do. And there's nothing wrong with this. I would encourage you to do this. But he doesn't come and say, pray for your marriage or pray for your kids or pray for your business or pray for your health or pray for your friends or for their health or for their businesses or for their kids or for their... He doesn't do any of those things. When he starts talking about what to pray for, Pray for the Holy Spirit. Saw that last week. Pray for the laborers. Pray for people so full of the love and of the peace and of the joy of Jesus Christ that they're overflowing and they're looking for and they're longing for opportunities to pour out the love of Christ 
into the beakers of the hearts of the people around them. Every chance they get. Pray for those kind of people to be raised up by God. And pray for God to make you one of them. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you do not come to make us empty, but that you come to make us full. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you, God, for Jesus. We thank you for one who is innocent and dies for the guilty, for we are guilty, and we thank you for the forgiveness that is free to us by simply claiming the benefits of the life and of the suffering and of the death and of the burial and of the resurrection of that one who lived and suffered, who died and was buried, and who has risen from the dead, that we might be free from death, that we might be forgiven of sin. God, fill us with him. Give us faith to to fight against the things within us that we need to die to. Lord, help us to realize the great value of Jesus relative to whatever that is and everything else. Lord, fill us with you. And give us grace to be rid of the rest. Let us know what it is to deny ourselves in joy, to die to ourselves in joy. Not as a have to, but as a, as a get to do, as a want to. Lord, let us see the beauty of the treasure in the field. The one who is so beautiful that we'll give everything away, gladly, that we might possess him. So let us possess you, Lord, and possess us. God, make us people so full of your joy and of your peace, so full of your life and of your wisdom, so full of you that we're just looking for opportunities because, I mean, we're so excited about the joy, about you, that we cannot contain it to ourselves. Make us harvesters, Lord, and raise up harvesters because the harvest is is plenty and the laborers are few. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.